So we're here today with Brian Masseri. And Brian, you all know him from This Life of Brian on LinkedIn. So today we're going to talk about what is happening in This Life of Brian. Everybody, let's welcome Brian. Hey, I appreciate it very much, Robert. Let me say before I get into that, I'm really, really honored to be here and that you would ask me to be a guest. And I'm just super excited to have a chance to talk to you uh, here on the podcast. Um, so This Life of Brian is just a series on uh, LinkedIn that I started on January 1st of um, 2021. And uh, the concept was really simple. I like to tell stories a lot, um, was coming up on 43. I just recently turned 43. And I started thinking to myself, you know, I, I bet you I have a few things that some other people could, um, you know, relate to or learn from or experiences in my life. And uh, it'd be a real shame if I didn't, if I didn't share those with other people, because we can all learn from each other. Um, but we also, we all have that imposter syndrome of, of sort of believing um, what you have to offer is not valuable. Uh, or valuable to other people. Of course, that's not true. We all learn from each other's experiences. I do every day. I love your posts. Obviously, you know, I'm a huge fan of your, your LinkedIn content and uh, I gain stuff from there. And that would be a real loss if you weren't willing to share that uh, with the LinkedIn community and beyond now with this podcast. So that's really what it was. And the goal was pretty easy. I can, I can talk for days. Uh, I can, I could spend a lot of time on this podcast with you, but the idea was to be concise because um, it's something I need to work on. So I wanted the content to be evergreen. Uh, I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about current events. I don't do any of that stuff. Um, so next year, I hope that it's just as relevant as it is this year. That was one of my goals. And then also, um, I wanted to keep it underneath that like minute and a half um, time frame because that's sort of where the 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 attention span, if you will, for LinkedIn is for brand new people putting out content. Now, if I grow my audience and i am got 50,000 people following me or something on LinkedIn, sure, a, a 10 minute piece will work. But right now, since I'm just starting, I think a minute and a half is sort of where I need to be. So it was sort of a personal goal. It was just like, hey, let's see if I can do this. And, um, you know, over 50, 60 uh, different daily posts now of videos, um, it's been growing and, it, you know, slow. It's been going well, though. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. So tell us, what has been the response to this life of Brian? I'm a fan, definitely. And I can see on LinkedIn, a lot of other people are fans. But what has been the response that you've been getting from other people? Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been really, really happy with it. Um, that is resonating, right? Because you, you ultimately don't know. You think, well, am I the only one that thinks this way? And then I think, well, if I am, I probably should put that out anyway, you know, because I don't make good content, right? So uh, the response has been, has been good. I, I've doubled my followers, which I, I don't mean that, to, not from 25 to 50,000. I mean, I'm talking about early on 500 to 1,000, right? So um, it's still still early on in the process. But uh, the response has been great. I've, I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, it's led to amazing opportunities exactly like this. Uh, this is the second podcast I've had an opportunity to be on, which is fantastic. I love I love the podcast format. Um, it's allowed me to um, have great conversations with people offline and, and direct messages and stuff. Uh, it, it's quite honestly, both probably led to um, the demise of my last job and the success of future opportunities. If ah. I'm being quite honest with you. Um, and I, I see those both as being a positive thing. Well, and, and, you know, to that point, that's always something that's interesting because as the world is changing, people are doing more and more outside of work that may actually be related to work. Mm -hmm. And I think companies haven't caught up to that yet. Um, right. So how did you get to doing this life of Brian? How did it all start for Brian? 
what so what are the where do the stories come from that kind of stuff like the background or just that particular series uh well you as a person you've mm-hmm. started off working jobs in corporate america and you right. you've been a serial entrepreneur and i would guess that all of those experiences are what led up to this life of Brian, you as a person, as well as the daily series that we see on LinkedIn. So what does yeah. life look like for you? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. This Life of Brian, it, it's uh, obviously a play on the Monty Python uh, uh, Life of Brian movie from back in the day that um, uh, people really enjoy, if our age. <laughs> that our I was about age, to say, not really many people are going to get that though, yeah. Yeah, so it, it was a play on words from the movie the the, um, the life of Brian, and so I thought, oh, this life of Brian, because it was sort of it's it's about me, it's my personal journey and my and my successes, if you will, and a lot of my failures and a lot of funny stories about messing up and 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 figuring out how to how to get back up after clearly being knocked down. But you know, really, the through line for all of that uh, has has been you know just a, a desire to want to help. Um, and so, you know, early, early on, I grew up Catholic and uh, my parents were born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, but I spent most of my life growing up in Georgia. And so I had a really great, you know, I, I have an older brother and it was the four of us and I had a, I had a really blessed, great uh, upbringing. I have nothing, nothing to complain about. Um, but it was a desire to, I found myself attracted to people who were quote unquote broken. And I mean, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean truly. And what would happen was I would want to fix the problem. And so early on, I didn't really know what to do with that. But it came out of, if you want to call it Catholic guilt or just guilt in general of actually having a pretty good life. And I always felt guilty for that, whether it was that I was, you know, I had the the, the blessed fortune of, of growing up in a you know, white suburban neighborhood with not, you know, low crime and, and not issues that I had to deal with, with race or, or, you know, sexuality or anything like that. I just felt like, you know, I don't know, sometimes you just feel like you hit the lottery. And so I always wanted to help other people. I wanted to give back somehow. I didn't know how to do it. So I would naturally attract to people who were perhaps didn't have that upbringing, who had um, difficult circumstances to say the least. And either I would, I would find myself romantically attracted to them because it was misplaced. I was, I was associating, you know, yeah. love or whatever it might be with, um, well, if I fix them, which no, by the way, nobody was asking me to, that's the big, that's the biggest problem there, right? <laughs> nobody was asking, but you know, you come in and, and if I, if I can fix this problem, well, then that's a way of showing affection and showing love. Yep. Ultimately I got out of college and got out of um, into the corporate world and kind of puttered around and then had a dream one day that I should be a firefighter and quite literally changed my life. Um, I just had a dream about it. I don't know where it came from. Uh, I don't, I don't know why, but I woke up the next morning. I thought that's what I should have been doing. And so I started working really hard towards that. And so I went back to night school so I could get, I had my, I had my um, college degree, but I wasn't an EMT and I needed to be an EMT to get in the door as a firefighter. So I went back to night school and worked full-time at a uh, financial Wells Fargo financial at the time I was selling mortgages and, and loans and things like that, but I was going to school at night and I was, um, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, Robert. I was uh, uh, going to school at night to become an EMT. And then I got on as a firefighter. And that was the first time that was really the first time in my life where I thought, okay, I'm exactly where I should be. 
I'm exactly where I should be because I'm helping people. And it was a one-to-one relationship. There was never any confusion as to what good was I putting out to the world because I was always responding to calls and they were either medical or fire. Or sometimes it was just, you know, I accidentally locked my kid in my car and we would have to get through windows and cars to get a kid out. I mean, it, you know, they weren't all emergencies, but you were always responding to people's worst day. And you were trying to make that worst day slightly better as, as much as you could. And sometimes you could sometimes with death and things like that, that you, you can only do what you can do. And then you console. So I always loved that part of it because I felt, okay, this is my pens. This is how I give back to the community I serve. And um, it filled me, it filled me up. Now let's, let's go back for one moment. You said sure. that you were working for Wells Fargo and you were doing mortgages. That was. And, but when you went to the fire department, that's when you truly felt fulfilled, like you were helping people. That's right. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people are missing in the corporate sector, because I mean, realistically, if you're doing mortgages, you're actually helping people get a home but right. you don't get to really see that. You don't get to see the joy on their faces when they get the keys to their new home or when they open the first door. But as a firefighter, you could actually see it. And, and it sounds like it triggered that. You hear neuroscientists talk a lot about the, the helper's high. It's the hormones that are released when you're helping people. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've always just wanted to help people. I would go as far as to say I'm addicted to it. To be, tr- be truthfully honest, it's a high, right? So yes. um, there is quite literally nothing that I've ever experienced since that feels like running into a burning building. That's a high. Anybody can call what they want, but firefighters love what they do because they because of what they do. Yep. And running into a burning building has a has a certain um, a certain response. It, it, it invokes a certain response that uh, I've never ever, you know, experienced since. I'm sure there's other other jobs or, or, you know, careers that could do it. But for me, that was, those were the best days. Those were the best days because you were coming together as a team. You had one singular focus, which was put out the fire or, you know, safety first, so rescue, followed by property saving, right? You know, um, whether it was surround and drown or whatever the case was, but there was one singular focus. And I always loved arriving on that scene in whatever you know unit that I was in, but you knew that everybody was laser focused on the job at hand. And that job had very real consequences, whether you did it well or not to the people. And so I worked in an area called Clarkston, Georgia, which I think is doing better now, but Clarkston, Georgia was um, transitioning in 2003 And so it was a pretty tough neighborhood, had a lot of very old apartment complexes. In my immediate alone, we had like 53 apartment complexes, which was unusual. So that's what we did a lot of fires on. And they weren't well built. They were from like the 1960s and 70s or whatever, and they were dilapidated. And they, they, if a fire got going, it could run a whole building easily. You're talking about multiple, multiple families displaced, if not, um, you know, critical issues of, are they still in the building if it's night and stuff? I, I truly loved those, those times, those opportunities where guys and girls got on the scene together and we just worked towards a goal. And you knew what the goal was, which was save property, save lives, you know, reverse order, save lives, save property um, until you were done. And some of those, some of those scenes would, would last 10, 12 hours. The sun would come up and you'd be sitting on, the, on a curb somewhere, drenched, exhausted, 
your coat open, your, your t-shirt underneath it freezing. If it was cold out because you're, you were sweat through your t-shirt, you had gone through two or three bottles. You're sitting on a curb somewhere and somebody shows up and they have, you know, Chick-fil-A sandwiches that they went and bought for the, for the people on the scene, you know? Yeah. And you're just eating the Chick-fil-A sandwiches, sitting on a curb in the middle of somebody's suburb, smelling like smoke or whatever, but you knew what you had just done. And, and it gives me goosebumps thinking about it now, to be perfectly honest. It was an amazing experience. And I have the utmost respect for uh, our men and women who do this on a day-to-day basis. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about, because as you've been saying this, I had a couple thoughts run through my head. Sure. Let's talk about passion versus purpose. Because when I hear you talk, I hear a passionate person. Um, but it sounds like you didn't discover your purpose until, well, you left Wells Fargo and you found a job where right. you could fulfill that need to help others. Right. So what do you think? Do you think you have to have both or do you think one is more important than the other? Uh, I would say, hopefully your passion will lead to your purpose, I guess is the way I would think about that. I was trying to think about that in the right order. But if we think about it, there's all things we're all passionate about. And if we can truly find something that fills that, that, that needs that purpose, I guess, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's starting something on your own uh, or working for, you know, a, a large corporation, if that's what it, if that's what you're doing. If, if, the purpose is there and you're passionate about it, well, as the saying goes, you'll probably not, never work a day in your life. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I wasn't brought up that way. I was brought up because everybody was, you know, my, my parents didn't have college degrees. My dad eventually got his college degree while he was already an executive at Delta airlines. That's when he got his college degree around the same time I got my college degree, which was around 2000, you know, he, he didn't have those same, you know, so for my parents, getting a four-year degree from a college was a, was a huge deal. You know, our, our kids, our boys will, will get four-year degrees, but it was more focused on the degree than, than on the passion. And I went through college focused on get, getting out of college as opposed to actually having something to offer. And so yeah. I had a degree that didn't mean anything other than the fact that I had a piece of paper and I mistakenly thought I got out in 2000. I mistakenly thought people would be knocking down the doors to offer this brand new kid who now had this UGA degree, which I was very proud of. Um, and, and not, and that wasn't the case, obviously, as we all know, that wasn't the case. And so I didn't have people knocking down my door or offering me jobs. And so I was very rudderless after college and, um, pretended like I was still in college and drank my way around Orlando and, and had some fun. But, but ultimately until I woke up that morning, uh, divine intervention, if you will, and realized that I should be a firefighter. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I just felt lost. I was like, I oh, great. I have this degree. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I mean, somebody but I will cares, say, but, you know. But I will say, if you're going to be in a drunken stupor in a city, Orlando <laughs> is the city that you want to be listen, in. <laughs> listen, I had a lot of fun and I have a lot of stories that I can probably share on this life of Brian about Orlando and the, the, the silliness of it. it. It is a great city. And I live in Tampa now, so we still go back to Orlando all the time. Um, but now we do family things on Orlando. <laughs> so, so now, as a firefighter, you are fulfilling your purpose and you're passionate about it because you're yep. helping people. Yep. Now you decide you want to become a business owner. Mm. How did that come about? And, and, and how did that process look for you? 
So that's an interesting one. So what happened was I was a firefighter, domestic firefighter in DeKalb County, fire, for DeKalb County Georgia, um, which is basically Atlanta for, for anybody that doesn't know that area. Um, and my wife and I were both finishing up our master degrees. I was doing mine in executive fire service leadership. I usually just say executive leadership now. And my wife was becoming a dietitian. She had gotten out of the Coast Guard, um, had served and uh, decided while she was in the Coast Guard that she wanted to be a dietitian. She um, did like one interview after college, had a recommendation and got a job here in Tampa at a, at a really good um, hospital called Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, oh, yeah. Very well respected. And so she started her career as a dietitian after being, you know, she went to UGA too, but then also like me, bit rudderless, went into the Coast Guard, um, was an officer in the Coast Guard, toured the world on a U.S. Uh, Coast Guard cutter. She was on a boat and went around the entire world with it, had an amazing experience and found her passion, which is nutrition. And so we were at this place where I was doing firefighting and she was she had, was becoming a dietitian and the job, her job took us to Tampa. My mom was, at that time was had gone through a long battle with cancer and she passed in um, on August 8th of 2008, so 8808, uh, which was also coincidentally the opening ceremony for the Beijing Olympics. Different story, but just sort of one of these coincidental things. Yeah. And uh, it was a Friday. And she, uh, anyway, my mom had passed away and we were looking to make a change and get out of Atlanta and get into warmer weather out of, out of the South into the South, basically into Tampa. And she had this great opportunity. So that brings me back to, uh, how did I, how did I end up owning my own business? Well, I couldn't actually get on as a firefighter down here. I had reciprocity. I had all the things I needed to have, but I was not a medic. And that really caused me some problems. So I actually enrolled in medic school, eventually realizing there really was no other path. During that time of many resumes that I put out there um, and almost nine, six months earlier, I put in this resume was for a company called WSI and they were a contractor under KBR, subcontractor under KBR for, for in Iraq. And so I actually ended up going over to Iraq to be a contract firefighter and ended up staying over there for 15 months. But I actually was only on base doing actual firefighting stuff for about the first nine weeks and then a chief pulled me back to headquarters and I ended up running parts of the training division for that. So basically I would run continuing education among several other things. I would teach in a tent. We'd have new firefighters come in and I would have to teach classes and get them onboarded and ready to go out to their individual bases around Iraq. So it's about 500 firefighters at any given time under WSI in Iraq. And so I worked in, in headquarters in the training department to work with that. That's how I found out about CrossFit. I never heard about CrossFit before. This is like, this is uh, 2009. Um, CrossFit was definitely a big deal on the West Coast, but a very small deal on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And so quite, quite honestly, when somebody said, do you do CrossFit? I thought it was like a Bowflex. I thought it was an at-home piece of equipment. Yeah. And um, that was very common. Got out to a base and people doing CrossFit. The first guy I met was super machoism. And I thought, if this is CrossFit, I want nothing to do with this. And actually just wrote it off. Um, ended up running into some, um, army guys and girls who were doing it, learned more about it. And then I realized, wow, this really, this really ticks a lot of boxes for me. I really genuinely, genuinely love this because my first job I ever had was a karate, uh, karate instructor. I started teaching when I was like, I got my black belt when I was 13. I started teaching when I was 14 and I did that till I left for college. So all of a sudden I was like, oh, I know this. 
I know this job. I know what it's like to stand up in front of a class and lead them and, and talk about fitness, which I was passionate about and nutrition, which obviously was a big deal now with my wife. And so ultimately the decision would have been come back home, get back into the same, you know, uh, grind of trying to become a firefighter. Cause I really didn't get, I didn't progress while I was in Iraq. It just sort of was a pause. And I would have had to started that whole chain up again. But my wife and I, the only reason really to go to Iraq is the is to make money. And so my wife and I took a lot of the money we saved. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't care. We saved about $35,000. And we said, um, I said, I think I'm going to open a CrossFit gym. And my wife said, yeah, let's, let's try that. And so that was really how it happened. That was, I was in Iraq. I knew what the future looked like, which was get back in the rat race back home. Not that I didn't love being a firefighter. I thought I would retire after 28 years being a firefighter, living happily, doing something else, having a pension, honestly. But I, I really wanted to take a chance at owning my own, my own business. So when I came home, my daughter was born and two months later, we opened the doors of the gym. Oh, wow. And as soon as you opened the gym, it was automatically successful. Lots of clients and you started making <laughs> a bunch of money, right? Immediately. That's how it works. Immediately. I'm surprised you must have been around. You you remember my story. Yeah, no, obviously <laughs> not. Um, Good. So, so what were some of the, what were some of the lessons that you learned along the way to build that gym up? And I know at one point you eventually sold it. So yeah. What was the ride like getting up to that point? Oh, man, invigorating. Um, I would say that was the ride. It was it was a nonstop runaway train for the better part of five years, especially in those early days. So just to paint the picture, um, I was in our first gym was in our neighborhood. We have a little down a little downtown area in our neighborhood that has like a pizza shop and a, and a barber shop and things and a little coffee shop. And there was an 800 square foot space underneath two floors of apartments. And that's where I opened my first gym. So when I tell you it was tiny, I'd had the bathroom that had a little desk area in it. And then I had the workout. Area. So we sort of started saying, you know, we don't need much. We don't have one. We don't have one. We had one athlete and that was my landlord. He was my, my first athlete and signed my, you know, the dollar bill that hung on the wall. And so that was it. That was all we had. And then it was like, how are we going to grow it from here? Because truthfully, when you, if I had gone into the grocery store, people would have thought I was talking about a Bowflex. They didn't know CrossFit any more than I did. And in, in, not in, not in Tampa in 2009, or I'm sorry, at this point, it would be uh, January of 2011. It was not a big deal. There was only, I was the eighth CrossFit affiliate in all of the Metro Tampa. I mean, from Sarasota up to Gainesville. So a very large area and over to Orlando, to be perfectly honest. So not a whole lot of people were doing it. So I had that uphill battle of not only was I trying to sell a service with monthly memberships, but I had to first explain what it is I did and why we thought we should be charging at that time, $100 a month for membership for working out that people could easily go next door and do for $15 a month at your prime fitnesses or whatever your fitness place was. So how was I going to convince people that I was worth a hundred dollars a month for getting fit when essentially you could get fit for $15 a month? How did a huge you do uphill that? battle. What's that? How did you do that? Um, you build a very, very good community and you sell the community. You don't sell the fitness. You sell, you sell the togetherness. You sell the embracing and supporting and cheering. You sell, you sell the community. 
because that's ultimately what you're paying for. You can work out on your own at your house. It doesn't cost you anything, you know, uh, with no equipment. Like quite literally, you can get in very good shape using zero equipment at your house. But people don't, right? And most people don't. Some people are motivated like that, but we know most people don't. People want to be around people. We're, we're naturally um, drawn to being in, in groups, right? And so what you built, what the, what the CrossFit community really was all about was bringing in people from all walks of life, but, but doing it together. And you would suffer through the workouts together. You would celebrate people. One of the best things about CrossFit that I take to all businesses is you would hear cheering louder for the last place finish than you would for the finisher. Uh, always, always. So if you went to competitions, local competitions for CrossFit, the loudest cheering you would hear would be the last place person trying to get across the finish line, whether that was rowing or getting their last five reps in or whatever. All the finishers who might've finished one or two minutes earlier than that had, had sat on the floor, got their water. And then you would see this crowd, especially if it was something like a rower where the person was staying in one place, all of a sudden this big bubble would form you would have your crowd, but then you would have your, your athletes who were competing directly against that person and may lose to them in the next event. Maybe this was their weak event, but it didn't matter. People would make that bubble and scream louder and watch the rower and that person pulling and they'd scream louder and come on 10 more, five more. You've got this. And that is something that I wish every culture, corporate or otherwise, could emulate because you should be cheering for the people who come in last, the people who are struggling 10 times more than the people who are easily crossing the line, who maybe don't have to work as hard in that particular instance. And uh, I, I truly love that. So we built a culture, we built a family and people don't mind paying a hundred or in, as we grew 115, $125 a month to be part of that family because it meant a lot to them. It was a place that they could come to work out to feel safe, to be feel validated, and to um, get the kind of compassion that maybe they were not getting at their workplace or in their home life. Now, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier, but it's become a whole lot clearer now based on some other things that you've said, but you had this uh, desire to want to help people. Mm -hmm. And when you were in a corporate setting, that desire was unmet. But becoming a firefighter, you were able to help people and you even took that into CrossFit. But the one thing that you said about CrossFit that kind of added to it, and we didn't talk about this, but it just came to me, building a community and not just any community, a supportive community where mm -hmm. you help one another, you help those who have, you help those who have not. Um, and that seems to be a central theme for you and what actually drives and motivates you. But one thing that I've noticed is with you in particular and with us people, we don't have to be stuck doing one thing. Right. You know, you tried to do it at Wells Fargo and no, no offense to Wells Fargo, but the corporate <laughs> environments aren't conducive to that. But as a firefighter, uh, as a CrossFit gym owner and other things that you're doing and, and have done, you've been able to bring that passion and purpose to it, which seems like it's made you a happier person, but it's also oh, made sure. other people happier too. Yeah, for sure. I 100% agree with all of that. Yeah, my that is the through line is that whatever I'm doing, um, I'm happiest when I'm helping others. Um, and it's 
it's the easiest thing to do in the world. I talk about this in this life of Brian videos and stuff like that. If you're having a hard day, one of the easiest ways to make your day better is to go help somebody else. It's free. Somebody else gets something positive out of it. And it actually is not selfless. And you get something out of it too. Um, so hope is high. yeah, exactly. It's that same high. It's running into the fire. It's just a different way of, of manifesting it. Um, so no matter what I'm doing, um, I'm happiest when I can see the correlation between what I'm doing and who it's helping. And I find, I found, um, and I, I've had this re- recently, this revelation recently, that the farther that that connection is spread, in other words, between endpoints of, of a string, if you will, the longer that string is from me on one end to the person or people I'm helping on the other end, the longer that string is, the harder it is for me to do that job. Um, because I need, I need that validation in the morning that what I'm doing makes a difference. Some people are great about knowing how their purpose adds to the greater uh, total, the greater goal. And I can do that to a certain point, but I do find myself happier when I can reach out and almost touch the people that I'm helping. Um, ah. I, I definitely find more, more um, happiness when I can do that, when that, when that string is shorter. Wow. So how long did it take you to determine that this was what drives you? What, what age or stage in life were you when you discovered this is what drives me and I'm going to go towards it? I know you talked about some stuff being kind of just dumb luck, but when you, yeah. when it really clicked with you, what stage were you in and what happened? How did that feel? So, you know, it probably was as early as the karate days, right? I was, I started karate when I was about my daughter's age. I was about nine and got my black belt when I was 13. And so I was part of a culture there and a gym setting, right? No surprise that that's exactly what I went back to when I was older, that that was my happy place. Um, I didn't know it. I wouldn't have thought about it, um, but that's true. And uh, I, at an early age, I, I talk about this a lot. Um, I led classes as a, as a karate instructor, but I did it at a, almost an absurd young age. The thing was nobody there, it was such a supportive environment that nobody there actually stopped and said, Hey, do you know how weird this is that you're 14 and leading a class of adults? Because to them, I belonged and I was holding my own and I had a boss and I, you know, I I got a lot of coaching, early life coaching, but I also got a lot of ability to stand in front of people. It's why I don't mind being on video. It's why I actually love it. Um, Because being in front of people is something I've been doing forever. So public speaking doesn't bother me and things that have become legit fears for other people. I think so early on, it was not an issue for me that it just carried through. Um, But I would say for sure, once I figured out the firefighting thing, other parts of my life fell in place. I stopped looking for people to fix and started looking for people like my wife who didn't need me to to, to fix her problem. She wasn't asking for that. She was looking for me and what I could bring into it and vice versa. And, you know, this year will be 15 years of marriage for us and, and I, we couldn't be happier. So, you know, but that's, that's all connected, right? The, the finding that person in my life, my, my soulmate and, and um, all those things are connected to me first being happy and finding my passion and, and finding my purpose that comes first. And so we've talked about this a lot about that's the same as if you're in a business, right? You, you have, if you can find that passion and purpose, you will be amazed or maybe not so much what else in your life 
starts to fall in place almost almost magically so um once you get your sales and your rudder working and once you can do that the the world is yours whatever it is that it lights you up the world is yours and i always love hearing other people's stories about and i can't wait for this podcast to hear what what fills other people's sales and you know yeah yeah absolutely so for someone who is looking for their purpose, what advice would you give them? Don't focus on money. Cause that, that may not be where that may not be where it is. Uh, money, money does a lot for us. I, I won't, I won't uh, diminish it. I think a lot of people like to say, oh, it doesn't matter. It does. It does. Um, and you do have to make money. You know um, you could also live uh, easier smaller lives and, you know, people who are, who are working their way through tiny homes and doing all that and, and making it work on, on smaller budgets. So there's that, of course. Um, and truthfully, if that's what it takes for you to, to follow your passion, um, I would say, do it, you know, downsize, do what you have to do in order to follow your passion. More than likely the money will follow later, but I've talked about this a lot, whether it's in relationships, whether it's job searching, whatever, um, when you need it to happen, uh, there's a bit of desperation that can come across. And so a lot of times people pick up on that subconsciously. You think, oh, nobody really knows. Well, maybe they don't know your exact story, but we're all pretty good at picking up on other people's little keys and cues. And, oh, you know, Robert looks like maybe he's having a bad day today. And you're just posting a video and you're like, he seems off today. There's something going on with Robert. Maybe I should reach out to him and ask him if everything's cool, you know? And so I think there's a lot to that. And so what I would say is go follow your passion because it's your passion and see how you can make money at that to a, to a second degree. And if that means you have to do a side hustle in order to continue to follow your passion, then that's what you might have to do. There's probably no one clear path. I certainly have not followed any one clear path through my life, um, but I'm happy. And I think that's what I ultimately want. It's what I talk to my daughter the most about is let's find what makes you happy right now at 10 years old, it's gymnastics. So we, we work on that. And if that changes, as I suspect it will, um, I would tell everybody that's younger listening to this, do not expect to have it figured out by the time you're out of college. You're still very young when you get out of a typical college at 21, 22 years old, 23, whatever it is. And to assume that you would have had your life figured out at 23, to me, now looking at back at 43, is ridiculous. Yet, there's so much pressure put on so many kids. And on top of that, my advice I would give you is don't go into college debt. (laughs) Because how can you possibly follow your passion if the day you step out into the working world, you are expected to immediately start repaying back 30, 40, 50, $150,000 in debt? Now, I'm not saying that's not necessary in some cases like doctors and lawyers and things like that. But if you can avoid it, you should avoid it. Because how could you possibly go do what you are meant to do in this world and bring joy and help people in this world if you're immediately saddled by having to repay a debt for your education? Yeah, well, and you know, you bring up an excellent point. Um, and I, I'm just going to interject here. I I have, uh, I'm, I'm actually working on, another video that I'm about to release, but sometimes it's okay to not finish. People talk about going into college and finishing, Mm -hmm. and then you finish with a boatload of debt. Mm -hmm. 
think about a few people that we know of who never finished, who went on to do great things. Of course. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and uh, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to a point and they stopped because they got everything they needed. There are rumors that say that Steve Jobs, after he quit, he went back and started auditing classes. So he wasn't paying for them okay. per se. He yeah. was just auditing the classes, but he, he never finished. Um, so debt is one thing that holds people back. And with the, with the U.S. debt at something like a, a few trillion dollars right yeah. now, yeah, it's, it can be an insurmountable thing that sticks with you for about 30 years. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're good in the workforce for what, maybe 40 or 50? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's, it's it's a huge um, foot on the neck. I, mean, I don't know how else to say it. And I've just watched so many people struggle because, you know, quite, you know, um, not surprisingly, I should say, they thought they wanted to do, they wanted to do, had a passion, great went into college, but you're really young at that point. So you haven't maybe seen enough of the world or, or really fully developed what that may look like. You're forced into picking a degree. You only got four years. You got to get in and get out. At that time, it seems like a lot of time. Now, looking back, I, I can blink and four years goes away, right? So you're in college, you get out of college, and now you go like me. I mean, my degree was in geography, but I became a firefighter. Well, they don't have any. In fact, the firefighting did not care that I had a four-year degree. As a matter of fact, it was actually... Um, it actually was detrimental to a certain extent because when I walked in with a four-year degree, there was plenty of firefighters who felt like I was trying to show them up. Who are you to have this four-year degree, right? So that's a whole different chain, I know, but my point to it is just like you were saying, if I learned that I wanted to be a firefighter halfway through college and I was still going to be accruing debt, now I got lucky, my parents paid for my college, I did not accrue debt coming out of college. Another another great lucky story for me. but if I had learned that my, my, I should have been a firefighter, well, I didn't, I didn't need a four-year degree from University of Georgia. Maybe a two-year degree would have done, and I could have moved into my career and then eventually decided what I needed after that. Um, that certainly would have been a better path than had I had to have accrued debt to get there, only to find out I should have been a firefighter, and now I got 30000 in debt because I wanted to be, I wanted to major in geography. It just... It can be so crushing and it can really, as we both know, looking back, being a little bit older, a little bit wiser, it can really ruin somebody's ability to go follow their passion. When I think that's another important point, too. When you find that purpose and passion, don't be afraid to pivot. Pivot. Yeah. A lot of us, we we stay frozen in fear like the deer in the headlights, but pivot. Just do it. I 100% agree. Pivot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still pivoting. I yeah, intend well, to pivot for the next, the rest of my working career, whatever that may be. I probably have another, what, easy 20 years. I'm probably, let's say at 43, I'm probably halfway through my working career, right? Yep. So <clears throat> I started out of college, this and that. I was a firefighter when I was 23. So 20 years ago, I started as a firefighter. And let's be honest, 20 years from now only makes me 63. I probably won't be retired. I'll probably yep. still be doing something. How many more times will I pivot between now and the end of my career? I don't know. A lot, I suppose, you know, as long as I'm still passionate about what I'm doing and helping people, I honestly don't care because I'm always going to have new ideas and inspirations and things. Technology alone. How could I possibly be working in data analytics in college when the internet was still really going, getting going in 96? So to assume that we somehow have all this figured out 
is ridiculous. And so people shouldn't be afraid to pivot because that may be exactly what you need to do for, for your life. Yeah, well, it, it's, it is important to your passion and purpose. Now, just as a side note to your point, yes, when we were in college, so I'm 47. So right. I remember America Online, AOL. I remember slow dial up. We didn't have access to information and resources like we do now. No. So it's important to keep abreast of current technology be prepared to pivot and then figure out how we can incorporate all of this into our passion and purpose. That's right. I think that is the way to uh, ultimately be quote unquote successful. Cause I think success is doing something that fulfills that desire that you have. And for you, that desire was helping people. Um, yeah. And you found multiple ways to do that through firefighting, through CrossFit, through this life of Brian. So in, in, in closing, how can people find you if they want to reach out to you uh, and, and just talk to you and figure out how you can help them? Yeah. I mean, so LinkedIn is going to be the best way right now. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn. You know, you can see my name, Brian. It's Brian-Misery. Um, I also set up a website to make it easier because sometimes it's, it's hard to find that connection on LinkedIn. So if you just go to uh, LinkedInBrian.com. It'll still take you to my LinkedIn page. Um, and so you can also look at the hashtag, this life of Brian, Brian with an I. Um, and that will also basically direct you to that series that I'm doing. And the goal of that series is to post one um, short, you know, less than a minute and a half video a day on LinkedIn, talking about my experiences, failures, successes, funny stories, all sorts of stuff from my life. And then I try to connect those to business outcomes, things that we should all be working towards, whether it's mindset or productivity. Um, and so that's the easiest way to find me. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much an open book and I'm happy to connect with anybody uh, who's listening. So, you know, come find me on LinkedIn and uh, shoot me a message, connect. And, and if I can be of any help to you in any way, um, I'm here. I'll tell you what I know. And then hopefully that will help you in, in some way, uh, to figure out, you know, what it is maybe you should be doing or what your next pivot looks like. All right. Well, thank you, Brian, for joining us. I appreciate I it, Robert. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs>